You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole where hosts from the network and friends, they drop by and we just pick a great new geeky topic each week. Uh, I hope that you have gotten a chance to order that drink from Ruby and, and just picked out a chair as we gather around. I'm your host, Matthew Rushing, and with me as he is for the majority of the episodes, which is fantastic and makes my heart warmed. Norman, how's it going? Good, good. I am so excited to talk about this show because I love the subject matter so much. I'm not going to spoil it for our listeners. I'm not going to. I'm not going to steal your thunder, Matthew. So, oh, thanks. I'm just. Can you feel my excitement? It's crackling. I love it. Oh, I can feel it. Feel it, as Kronk feel would it. say. Oh, I can feel it. Darren, Darren, welcome back to the 602. Great to have you here. Hey, thanks, Matt. Yeah, I got Ruby to uh, give me a good shot of a uh, uh, a Hughes Maloof, my new uh, conco- oh, concoction. It's really mm-hmm. it's really tasty. But yeah, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a fun discussion. This is a, a great topic, as uh, Norm teased. It really is. And what we're going to be talking about tonight, what we kind of uh, dragged out of the 90s was the Rocketeer. Uh, he is a fictional character and a superhero, really, written by writer and illustrator Dave Stevens. Now, the character first came on the scene in the comics, and and that was in 1982, really as an homage to those great Saturday matinee serials of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, very much in the same kind of vein as uh, a Star Wars or an Indiana Jones was. And the Rocketeer has that secret identity thing going as well. He's Cliff Secord, the stunt pilot who discovers a mysterious jetpack that allows him to fly. His adventures set in Los Angeles and New York in 1938, and Stevens gave them a retro nostalgic feel and, and really did a great job, especially even referencing some of that uh, that pinup art that you would get with the Betty Pages of the day. Quick question before we even get to the fact that it was turned into a movie. Have either of you guys read the comic? Uh, I have not, but I have watched the movie a fair number of times. Excellent, Norm. Did you get? Have you ever read the comic? I did, and uh, it's it's been a long time since I have. But one of the things that I loved about the comic was I just love the style. I love Dave Stevens' nostalgic style and throwback to that era. So it's that's a period uh, that I just love reading about, and I love the artwork style from there. So they did a great job at emulating that in this movie. Well, I went through uh, Comixology the other day and uh, found out that you could get the original uh, eight-part series for five ninety-nine. I was like, well, what the heck? We're going to talk about The Rocketeer. This sounds like a good idea. I should do my research on this show. And uh, read the comic, and it was really interesting just specifically to see the things that they pulled out for the film. Uh, what was it they kept and what was it that they kind of let go? Uh, one of the things that I thought was great is they just kept the look of the Rocketeer. It's, it's almost completely the same. The only thing that's different is the jetpack design. But still, I mean, the jacket that he wears, the helmet, everything is is just spot on perfect. Um, they do a lot of other changes, though. They really cherry pick the best parts of the story from the comic and cobble it together as Disney does best and create, I think, 
something that feels very much their own. Um, the the comic is is much more adult in subject matter and nature, so this really isn't uh, necessarily for kids. Even some of the artwork uh, is very suggestive as well, and so. Disney, I think, did a fantastic job of taking this and creating a movie that anybody could watch. You know, you can show this to, you know, I don't know. Uh, Darren, you're you're a dad. Um, you know, what would you say is probably, you know, the best age for somebody kind of watching The Rocketeer for the first time? Like eight, nine? Yeah, I'd say about that. Kind of your first uh, foray into Indiana Jones kind of age. You know, it's still kind of got that, you know, it's got... Uh, it, it is a Disney movie, and you know, as we know, Disney has many different properties they could choose to release under. They have like Touchstone and a bunch of others. So, by them choosing to place it under the Disney label, I think they definitely, you know, stripped out a lot of you know those darker themes or you know not questionable content, but just content that wouldn't fit in a quote '90s Disney movie. So, yeah, I'd say that'd be a good age to to start with with it but you definitely want to have a talk about you know shooting people because that happens a lot but that's pretty much the most violent part of the entire thing it's not very graphic otherwise unless you're afraid of fire or zeppelins that is true that is true which i'm i'm afraid of both so this movie scares me to death (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, but i do i you know after reading the comic and seeing what disney did with it i think this is definitely a case where i like the film better than the source material because the comic, uh, even the storyline, it just doesn't make as much sense. Um, and uh, the the female character, Betty, in the comic really comes off badly. She just is a horrible stereotype of, I guess, the, the worst of, of what we consider women at that time who kind of only really seem to want one thing, which is a guy with money. It just, it's really bad. And and so I dis- I was disappointed that that was the case. Um, and it was interesting because those themes play a little bit in the film. You know, she, she kind of wants uh, Cliff to be somebody a little bit uh, more stable. But, uh, you know, they really downplay a lot of that stuff. So that was just really interesting. I enjoyed the film much better. So if you have only seen the film... I think you're okay. Now, if you're a comic fan, uh, you know, Norm, as Norm and I have talked with, with Jose on, on our previous episode about comics, I think it's definitely worth checking out because the artwork is pretty incredible. Really does uh, do a great job of throwing back to a previous age. Diving into the film, what were y'all's first experiences with this movie? Because uh, for me, it's, it's very clear in my mind, my first experience. So, Darren, uh, what was the first time that you actually saw The Rocketeer? Oh, it probably would have been uh, just in the 90s because I was right around that age, you know, 9, 10, in 91 when it came out. I probably would have caught this even in theaters as, again, as a Disney movie. Uh, but yeah, just, I think the, 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 it's that first feeling you get, which I think I even got uh, in watching it again. It's that sense of flying. They just capture it, uh, in the music, in the, the spirit of the film. And uh, I think I, uh, even though he didn't do the music, uh, for this particular piece, but, uh, a while back I, I got to go to the Hollywood Bowl and they had John Williams was there and he played this great tribute to aviation and flying 
And there are obviously many clips pulled from the Rocketeer in that from North by Northwest to, you know, everything in between. And that's just the first image I always get, even from back in the day was, uh, you know, just that soaring. It's like you're on soaring over California. It's like, you could just wrap it all together and, and, uh, uh, you know, actually, that would be a great ride. You know, Rocketeer. I mean, the Disney owns Rocketeers. They could do that. Uh, I don't know why they have uh, but, it. That's fantastic. But I'm digressing. But yeah, but it's a it, overall just. I would say that's the one of the core feelings of the movie, and it's that stands true when I first watched it in the '90s and today, you know, twenty four thirty years later, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Norm? <laughs> so let's see, nineteen ninety one, I was just starting college and what I loved about this movie is that this is a period of time what I really enjoy. Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of my all time favorite movies and this is a movie Raiders was a movie that was set in the late nineteen thirties. You had the rise of the Nazi powers, you had all of these clandestine organizations trying to fight them. It was just a really good, good versus evil kind of period. The period was very romanticized. America was like coming together to start building up, you know, uh, this nationalism that's going to work against like all these Axis powers. And movies like Raiders really bring that to the forefront. And The Rocketeer made me feel that same way. It has that spirit. It also brings that great sense of wonder that great sense of heroism and and the heroism that's thrust upon this most unlikely person. In previous podcasts, I've always referenced The Last Starfighter because I love movies like this because you have this normal person, this everyday Joe, this person who just goes about his business. He needs to pay his bills. He needs to brush his teeth. He needs to make sure that he picks up his girlfriend on time. He needs some money in his pocket. And all of a sudden, wham, something happens and changes his life. And what does he do with this responsibility? In this case, Cliff Secord, this ne'er-do-well stunt pilot, comes across probably the greatest invention of this time, this Howard Hughes-designed jetpack rocket that the Nazis want because they couldn't figure out the technology. It's in his hands. And it's kind of like, thank goodness that it fell into the hands of somebody good, that somebody has this really honest personality to him or else it could have gone devastatingly wrong. And that's the great thing about this movie is that it puts you in the seat, literally it's sometimes, of this particular character, whether when he's flying or whether he's trying to keep this rocket away from the bad guys. You just, you're really engaged with every scene. And this, it just does a great job at bringing in the period. The costumes are fantastic. The music is fantastic. And we'll get to James Horner later. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I am bursting at the seams talking about this movie because what it really does for me, and I think it would do for a lot of people if you haven't watched it, it brings you back to a simpler time in movies where good is good, bad is bad, and it allows you to really see the storytelling through the eyes of the main characters and feel it too. See, now I'm just picturing... Uh, greetings, Secord. You have been recruited by the FBI to defend the frontier against the Nazis and the Kodan Armada. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's the great fish out of water story, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, all he wants to do is get enough money to fly his stunt spectacular show and just get on with his life. I mean, he didn't want to become a hero, but, you know, it's heroism is thrust upon him. Mm. Uh, and what does he do? And, and and thank God he has PV, his conscience. 
and I can't speak enough about the great Alan Arkin in this role. So um, I'm going to stop right now so we can get <laughs> on to the rest of the show. <laughs> well, guys, for me, it was funny because um, the first time that I saw this film, my dad brought it home on VHS. He had rented it and we hadn't seen it yet. And luckily I had been primed. I've already seen, you know, uh, Raiders by this point I've already seen all the Indiana Jones movies I've seen Star Wars uh, all of them at least that are out by that point and so I'm uh, you know he brings this home and I'm like oh what is this and then of course the movie starts and you know there's that great musical sequence at the beginning and the music's kind of soft and lushly beautiful it it feels like you know something that I it didn't even know really about uh, you know soundtracks then so it felt like a John Williams type of, of sound to it and you know this movie just hits the ground running and it really never stops and Man, I just remember sitting there and just being blown away like, this is so much fun. And, you know, he's flying for the first time and he flies through that field and those guys are like, big gopher. You know, I mean, it's so funny because I was re-watching this movie and I was realizing there are still lines for this movie that I say all the time <laughs> that I kind of have forgotten where they came from, you know. And so it's, it is just, you know, when we think of going to the movies and when we think of having a great time and really enjoying something and, and just being kind of filled with that effervescence, I think this is what we think of. You know, the Rocketeer does that. You know, you you watch it, you're having a blast and you feel great by the time it's over, you know, and, and I think, man, I there are so many movies that just, um, they don't they don't do that in this way, you know. Um, I, I'm sure somebody might mention something like oh, Guardians of the Galaxy or something like that, but there's just something special about this, you know. I mean, and maybe that's because I feel like there's um, a real depth to what's going on in all of this as well, you know. Coming of age with, with um, you know, uh, Billy Campbell's uh, Cliff and, and uh, trying to, you know, uh, keep the beautiful girl and and all that stuff that's just it's so great uh, and especially at the age that I watched it you know I'm 12 when this movie comes out so all that stuff is starting to make sense to me <laughs> so it just hit me all at the right time I think uh, and yeah I have really loved this movie ever since so this is going to be I think um, just a love fest uh, <laughs> none of us has had love potion number nine but uh, we have watched The Rocketeer, and it's pretty much the same thing. And one of, one of the things I loved about this movie is that it's a nice, quiet movie up to a point. It's a, it's a really delicately done relationship movie, but it's also this really nice, very focused kind of quiet storytelling amidst this giant backdrop of what's going on in the world at this time. And... My favorite scene in this movie, bar none, has nothing to do with any of the live actors or any of the action sequences. It's the animated short that the Howard Hughes character plays for Cliff Secord, discussing and illustrating how dangerous his, his invention of this rocket pack was if it fell into the hands of the Nazis. And that alone illustrates how just on point the storytellers nailed the feeling of this piece where 
yeah, the Nazi domination was on the rise. And if something happens, it could have changed the entire power structure of the Allies versus the Axis. And oh my gosh, it was just so well done. And it really just drove home how good Joe Johnson was at really conveying the sentiment of the time of the 1930s and 1940s. And, you know, it's such a, there's such strong characters, like you said, Norm, you know, yeah, it, it starts off as kind of a, a just a lighthearted film because they're taking the time to establish, you know, what is Secord's motivation? What is his girlfriend's motivation? What is, you know, Timothy Dalton's motivation? And they all have, you know, different motivations, even the sidekick characters, even, you know, there's the FBI and the mob. Everyone has their own agenda. And this story swirls them all together around this rocket pack, but they never act out of character. They never all say, Oh, well now I'm all going to, we're all going to want this. It's like, no, we, you know, they all want the rocket pack for a different reason. And you can see why it would be good or bad if each individual group were to get it. Well, and that's what I think both of you just kind of nailed is that Joe Johnson learned from the masters of, of making this type of film. You know, he he worked for Lucas and Spielberg with their their special effects uh, and, uh, you know, in Star Wars. And then he worked on Raiders as well. And so he's seen these guys craft what we think of as kind of the pinnacle of the homage to the, the you know, the 1930 serials. And, you know, then he takes everything he's learned and he pours that into this film. And what I love is that a lot like Raiders, you know, this movie is flowing along for a while. And then all of a sudden you get to a point where the story becomes really important. Like what we're chasing and what we're trying to do has nothing to do with the actual um, object itself. It has to do with keeping the object safe from something worse that can happen, you know? And I think that's what makes this just so special is that, you know, we hum along for a little while and then we completely turn it on its head and and make this something that you weren't necessarily expecting. I mean, I remember the first time seeing it, you just bump it along and it was great. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about the fact that this guy's a Nazi and he wants this for Nazis. And then, like you said, Norm, you see the video and that uh, Terry O'Quinn's character shows him, and you're like, "Oh, this, this is, this is terrible. This is going to be bad." So that is just, I think, fantastic. And I love that. You know, it was is Joe Johnson um, really getting the opportunity to 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 put this before us because. I don't know if anybody else at this point other than him or somebody like Lucas or Spielberg could have done this so well. There was a scene that I was watching last night and it struck me funny because I couldn't believe how almost um, paralleled in almost in every way in, in, in the sequence and the beats of the scene that it that it uh, reminded me of Raiders. In, in Raiders, there was that great scene where Indiana Jones had a bazooka trained on the Ark and he says, I'm going to blow up the Ark, Renee, and he goes, all I want is the girl. That's the almost the exact same scene, almost beat for beat, when he was in Hughes Aircraft, when he's talking to Howard Hughes. He's like, look, I need this rocket pack because all I need to do is get the girl. You can have it when you're done. I just need to get the girl. And it's a real, that's a very simplistic sentiment and very romantic at the same time, again, against this huge tapestry of this, this global 
chaos that's going on at the time. So I thought that that was neat. And yes, he he did um, learn a lot from Spielberg, especially again emulating the the sentiments of this period. Well, and one of the things I really like about the Rocketeer is it's it's pre ninety three, so it's pre Jurassic Park, and you know we're not yet in the era of CGI everything. So, so, I mean, you just think of the, the steps they're taking to set up this world with like the air show and all of the spectators and all of the stunts and even, you know, all the way to the Zeppelin scene at the end. I mean, yes, obviously they're using, you know, miniature work and and tricks of the trade, but there's a lot of production value that had to go into the movie to tell this type of movie. This isn't a small movie. This is a big, you know... I think it was 40 million budget in the day, but this was a fairly large production uh, to do without the advent of CGI. And I always try to remember that when I'm watching, you know, uh, pieces from this era is just to remember, oh, that's right. They couldn't just, you know, flip a switch and now he's flying. Or, I mean, think of how easy would it be to do a CGI flying rocketeer? I mean, you could, mm-hmm. I mean, you could have a, a first year graphic artist do it in their sleep. But back then, it, you know, it was not so easy, but it, it holds up relatively well. Well, usually, I mean, good story. It's like there's an old adage, like if, if the storytelling is good and the shot sequences are good, the effects will be the effects. And they'll either hold up based on the technology, but they will never degrade because they tell the story so well. Mm-hmm. So much like Raiders, I mean, Yes, there can be a lot of polish to what ILM did in terms of their matte framing, in terms of the transition between uh, stop motion animation and all the different framework that they do for that. But you can forgive a lot of that stuff because the story just clips by so well that it just doesn't matter because you know that it was 1981 and this is 1991. Yeah, we know that, like you said, Darren, it's like it's not it's not about the technology. It was how good that technology told the story, you know. Well, and they don't, they're not flourishing any of the special effects. You know, they're only there to serve the story. You know, there's, there's no, um, there's nothing superfluous about anything in this film. You know, and, and like you said, Darren, the fact that you have real crowds out there watching the air show, you know, that's a real plane up there. All of it's, you know, real. You can do amazing CGI and uh, where you can't tell what the difference is. That's one of the things that personally enjoyed about the Hobbit movies is that the CGI is so good. I couldn't tell when they've added to a, a character that was on screen, you know, that had actually been filmed physically and they could just altered something or when it was actually just a digital character because it's gotten so good these days. And so... But this, it everything here, it has a purpose. It, it means something. It's and it's done so well that yes, I, I think these special effects. You know, geez, you could just go in and clean up some of the matte lines that you get. You know, when he's especially when he's flying right uh, during the, daytime the day. scenes. Yeah, yeah, that, and those are the only things that really kind of stand out to you is just being glaring. You know, to to today's eye. Well, I feel a big thing that kind of gives away you know special effects is where the camera is and and because so much of this was practical it's like well the camera's strapped to another plane flying next to this plane there's only so many types of shots you can get like that you know and so when now when when we can put the camera digitally anywhere 
it's like, oh, well, now the pl- now the camera's going to do this barrel roll flip and fly through the engine and pop out, you know, the gas gauge. It's like, okay, you kind of took me out of it a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Just put, the, just give me a lock shot. Let me see where the action is, what's going on, and f- in that case, you know, you, you you get a lot of great storytelling. Uh, you like I said with flying, you feel like you're flying with a rocketeer, even though the camera's not up his nose, you know. Right, and. I'm glad it yeah, wasn't. I'm glad it wasn't. <laughs> it's a little hairy up there anyway. So, um, well, one of the things that I, I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about was was the, the storyline and talk through some of those elements. Because I, I think what's great here is that watching through it again, you know, and trying to be critical and see if there's anything that doesn't work um, or anything like that. I'm just really surprised, especially after reading the comic and the source material and seeing how much work Disney does to actually create a fluid uh, follow through in the story. Because that really isn't there so much in the comic. But they take the best pieces and they have somebody just come in and do a great job. So what about the story for you guys is, is still some of your favorite things and really works? And then, you know, if there's anything that still doesn't. Well, I think that they did a really good job telling the story and making you feel like you're part of the period because the set design and the production work is fantastic from scene to scene to scene. The the Bigelow Airfield is a great establishing area for who these characters are. And we're talking Cliff Secord and Peavy and that whole lot, you know, at the uh, at the Bulldog Cafe. And then you switch gears to the Hollywood sets of the time the Errol Flynn type of flavor that is going on with the Neville Sinclair storyline. Then you have this, that gorgeous house in Los Angeles where Eddie Valentine and the mob are hanging out. And then you have the South Seas Club, which is obviously kind of like that avant-garde uh, restaurant, uh, high-class luxury set that all of the Hollywood stars go to. So every time you shift scenes and and shift the parts of the story, you really always are connected to oh and um and obviously Hughes Air, you're really always connected to the period. So you never feel like you're getting taken out anywhere because it doesn't shift dynamic in that way. You're always tethered to this through line, which is that nineteen late nineteen thirties type of flavor. So. That also helps anchor the characters because they're going through the story from, you know, um, just this really nice quiet part of the airfield to this bombastic ending at Griffith Observatory to a Zeppelin that, you know, that is the iconic Nazi vehicle of the time. I mean, it's it, it just really crescendos so well, the story. And I just really can't say enough about how good the... The economical storytelling is. The script is very tight. Uh, there are very, very, very few slow beats aside from the exposition. Uh, I just don't, I don't really see anywhere that I can poke a hole in it really. And not that I was looking at it in that way, but the the movie goes along at a clip, and it really just does a great job overall with the ins and outs and the dynamic and the flow. Yeah, I feel two of the biggest strengths of the film is. It's it's way of showing and not telling, which it does a lot, uh, but also the way it reveals information to our characters. I mean, starting off with our main characters with, you know, Billy Campbell and and like the good guys, as it were, 
you know, they don't know very much in the beginning as far as where this story is going to take them. You know, they they barely find this object, but already we've been shown so much as an audience. But, you know, you feel like there's all these concurrent threads that are moving forward. You have, you know, the good guy thread, you have the mob thread, you have the FBI, you have, um, you know, the Neville Sinclair and, you know, even the Howard Hughes. And they all just inch forward, but they all they all know different pieces of the puzzle. And even as an audience member and you have the, you know, godlike view of seeing all of it, I never felt like they were giving me too much too soon. It was, and that I think helped, like you said, Norm, build with the pacing and the, and keeping the, the beats up, even though it wasn't action, 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 it was suspense, you know, cause it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a little noirish. It's like, Oh, you know, here's the mob boss and he's doing this, or here's, you know, a tiny Ron, he's going to fold you in half. And, you know, and there, there was enough suspense <laughs> built in on those downbeats that you were like, well, what's going to happen next? It, it was a page turner of a movie, which is, I think one of its best qualities. I think the one scene that really shifted the movie as a gear in terms of it being an action adventure type movie to something with a little bit more serious tone is when Jenny was trying to hide from Neville Sinclair and she found his hidden lair and she was trying to work the controls for this radio and then all of a sudden she picks up a book and on that book is a gold foil stamped swastika with the heraldry of the Nazi eagle and it to this day still that icon immediately informs you of how serious the danger really is how high the stakes are because up until this point it's just kind of rumor that there's the you know there's this spying that's going on that there's some type of clandestine thing going on with Neville Sinclair but then all of a sudden bang you see that book and it instantly crystallizes the situation and now you're like oh when you see that it's Hitler, it's Nazis, it's evil, it's you have to find every possible way to keep this rocket away from these people because if if they get it, the game changes. And I, I love that about that particular scene. Well, and then, like you said, they drive it home then with the exposition with Hughes. That's right. uh, which, again, how else would you tell that part of the story? How would you communicate the depth of... No, well, imagine, I mean, you could have this big exposition where he's just talking and saying, well, imagine every, you know, Nazi with it. It's like, no, let's show you the propaganda piece. And it even more sells you within You're again, you're learning it as our heroes are learning it. And they're having the same realizations you are. And you're like, this right. is bad. Right. No, absolutely. Well, and, and one of the things that's really nice, too, is the way I think that and I was paying attention to this specifically. And I don't know why when I was watching the film is is the Jenny character. You know, and that at the first part of the movie, she is a little bit um, stereotypical. And as the movie goes on, she kind of grows and grows into a much stronger character. You know, and and by the end, you know, when she is in his lair, you know, and she's searching, she's trying to find something. And, um, you know, she has knocked him out, you know, and been able to... Uh, to find out something that we didn't know you know she's the one who finds it out first which I think is great so I really like the way that they they dealt with her character and she wasn't just some damsel in distress she actually is somebody who learned some things that we don't know Cliff doesn't know until obviously he's he's told by Hughes and so 
I just think that stuff was great. And then, of course, at the end, when she's able to pull out the 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 uh, directions, the mm. The schematic. Yeah. I just, yeah, exactly. Just so funny, you know, that she had been able to, you know, steal that without Which is the perfect knowing, so. 90s uh, hook if we wanted to do a sequel. Sequel. It's like, yep. it's like exactly. let's just put this one scene in just yep. in case. Yep. Yeah, it was great. And so that was one of the things that really stood out to me. Um, and I think what you were talking about, Norm, with the, the story working so well with the production value that you just never question anything you know everything looks fantastic you know from the bulldog cafe which looks so good to to being in all these places in la that still exist you know and they do such a great job of making you feel like you're in old school la without actually ever really showing you much of L.A. They don't do any wide shots, you know, or anything where they're having to CGI, obviously, all of, you know, or creating massive models or anything. They just, they show you a key. They show you enough. Yeah, they show you enough without having to blow the budget on creating a, you know, a 1930s model of L.A., you know, whereas today you would just, you know, do it in CGI and nobody would worry about it. So all of that, I think, is, is great because as you're watching the movie, you're not caring that that stuff's not there. You have everything that you need through the story and through the production value to, I just think, nail uh, exactly what they're going for. And again, I, I think it's Joe Johnson. I, I think, you know, um, he just completely gets this kind of film in the, in the same way that I felt like he was the best choice to, to bring Captain America back to the screen. And, you know, he's setting it in, you know, the world war two era. He, he kind of gets that whole Indiana Jones-ness, um, of it. And it works really, really well. And, um, I, I, I'm just really sad we never got a sequel to this because like you guys just kind of sets it up and feels like we could have had at least one more movie with the Rocketeer show up for some reason. But um, yeah, but unfortunately box off office wasn't quite enough to uh, to warrant such. And then you move on to the next thing. Yeah, and they were testing a lot of movies like this at the time. I mean, this was kind of like the rise of the superhero movies per se because you had the Phantom with Billy Zane and Christy Swanson, and then you had The Shadow with Alec Baldwin and Penelope Ann Miller, and then you had, obviously, Dick Tracy, which was a... It was a critical success, and it obviously won Doug Drexler the Academy Award for for makeup, but they never really quite struck a good chord with the audience because I think the audience was really wanting the standardized comic book tights-type heroes to come back because all of these heroes really were from... You know the funny papers, if you will, of the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. Yeah, I mean they're they're legendary in the history of comics, uh, but well, not so much the Rocketeer. The Rocketeer is a throwback, but you know your your Phantoms and your Flash Gordons and your Buck Rogers of the world. That's where all of this. That's where Dave Stevens and Jim Silk and Joe Jusco and the artists of the time that were doing a lot of this type of style drew a lot of inspiration and from this source material. So, but it didn't really resonate as well as. You know, your Batmans, your Supermans, your Spider-Mans, your Fantastic Fours and stuff like that, which came obviously a little bit later, except for Keaton's Batman, which, you know, predated this back in 1988 or 86. I think what's what's interesting about this, too, is that how in that time period they were doing a lot of those, you know, old classic um, comics 
those noir type comics uh and they were really trying to put that on screen whether you know it's dick tracy or you know this or the phantom or any of those things it's just so interesting and i feel like in today's age we might be a little more um apt to go see a movie like that you know because i think more people are kind of aware of those things than they were back then and i don't know i i I feel like this this kind of film would be a big hit today because it has that throwback nature that we really really like and um it what's funny is that this movie didn't do better because it really does it is literally just indiana jones with a jetpack um and i'm so surprised you know that when you look at the at the box office returns we're talking um when you if you're rounding up it's 47 million that that's how much it made uh in its lifetime and i'm just surprised that it wasn't more because this is the type of film that i feel like today we've just been kind of lacking and people would really really i mean they'd come out of this and be like but maybe that's why captain america did so well because it does it it encapsulated that flavor and brought it back. I mean, I, I, you know, you know, his work, you know, Joe Johnson's work as soon as you see it, as soon as you feel it, because they're just these great telltale moments. What I love, there's, I got to say this, cause it's just this really cool thing at the end of the rocketeer, the little girl was running around pretending she's the rocketeer. And that's the very end of the movie. Yeah. And she's like, Ooh, yeah. I'm the rocketeer at the very end of captain America, the first Avenger, mm. those little kids were playing captain America. And that's what I loved about, those that that type of storytelling is like he wants to make you feel like a kid again and make you feel like you're back in your in your brain when you were imagining things when things weren't delivered to you digitally hand and foot the way it is now it's when you grab that stick and you pretended they were lightsabers and you grabbed your bathroom that brown terry cloth robe and you pretended you were a jedi knight it was all in your head and i think that's what he's trying to do with these films he wants to give you that sense of wonder again you well, know. in some ways you have like, you know, the, the, the Pivy character, you know, he's the adult. He's like, well, we probably shouldn't be touching that or, oh, you know, let's put this away. But then, you know, Billy Campbell, Cliff Secord, he's the child. He's the, no, I'm going to strap this to my back and push the button and see what happens, you know? And it's such a, but, but to the, it's a really uh, a strength to the comic though, because it seems like, like you guys have said, it, he, they basically just pulled this right out of the comic. I mean, the look is is exact. A lot of the elements are. I hear a lot of the designs as far as like the sets and the locations. Uh, the the comic people they just basically sent their sketches to the production company and they're like, oh, let's just use these. Like they didn't change very much because you didn't need to. It was such a well developed world straight from the comic and it translated so well to screen. Well, and it does, and. You know, I, I think the other thing that I respond to in the, in this film the same way that what he did in um, Captain America because of who Captain is, the Captain is, he's a good guy, you know. Um, he's got those, the, the same kind of morals and, and, and uh, values that are just homespun Americana, you know, and that's what this film is, you know, it... it in the same way that um, you know Superman embodies those those same principles, you know, and Cliff, for all of his kind of bumbling, he's a good guy who wants to do the right thing, you know, and 
he doesn't care about this jetpack in the end. He just wants to make sure his girl's safe and the rest of the world's safe. Right. He doesn't try <laughs> you know, to keep and, it. You know. Right. And uh, the same way that you know Cap would would jump on a grenade for somebody. You know. So it's these values that I think are just so missing in a lot of ways in in the the films that we get today. You know, our heroes. Um, they always have to be battered and bruised and broken and you know dingy and gritty and you're not allowed to be happy and you're not allowed yeah you're not allowed to be happy and even if you are say like a um you know a guardians of the galaxy well you're all crooks right you know there's there's nothing good about you and which again this is why i think what he did with uh, captain america and that character especially in the avengers series kind of makes him the moral compass for everyone and and you know it's the greatness of what we kind of get in the rocketeer it's pure clean fun and that's not a bad thing you know when you do it right like this you know what the greatest american hero was in this movie eddie valentine <laughs> eddie valentine the mobster because yeah it was it was the turning point where he had to make a choice and i love the fact that he said that i may be a mobster i may not make my living honestly but i'm an american and I'm going to be I'll be damned if I let this thing get into the hands of a Nazi or admit the fact that I actually worked for this Nazi crook. It's like, no way. And I love the fact that the mob and the FBI joined forces against the Nazis. <laughs> That's so awesome. So Eddie Valentine, greatest American hero of the Rocketeer. Well, and what's cool about the story, too, is you get this whole thing, you know, that the villain is hiding in plain sight in Hollywood because everybody's pretending to be somebody in Hollywood. And so it's easy to hide, you know, a Nazi spy. Right. Which, um, it's it's great. Which leads to that great scene uh, with Jennifer Connelly where he's trying to seduce her using his movie lines. And since she's seen mm-hmm. all of his movies, it doesn't work. And she just starts spitting out titles. Oh, that's what you said in, you know, Forever Romance or what you know. And he's just like, oh... Oh, this isn't gonna work on you, and it's just—it's so—it lets the air out of his tires so well. It's so funny, but it also makes her character that much stronger, right? So that she's not this damsel; that she yeah. she turns kind of like Peggy Carter-ish. You yeah. know, it's she's well, it, she's been paying attention. Yeah, you know, like she's a woman who pays attention to the world around her, and she has been a fan, and she's seen all his movies. It's kind of like the geek who ruins it for the you know, the uh, person on stage at a con, you know, when they say something and you just hear somebody shout out the right answer <laughs> and that person just has to feel like, a, you know, an idiot, like they were in the show. Um, so that we're, yeah, being obsessive can save your life. That's what we're saying. Well, and I feel that even though it seems like, you know, some of the time she's kind of been taken along as, as, you know, uh, Sinclair is trying to woo her, but I don't know. Like you said, she she pays attention a lot, and I, even in the times when she's giving him the benefit of the doubt, I kind of get the feeling though that overall she's always kind of just double checking him. Like, is he lining up? And so when he eventually turns, she's not really surprised. She's like, you know, I, I mean, as as slimy as the character as he kind of is, like I don't think she ever fully trusted him. Because she's too yeah. smart. For no, that. I totally agree. No, totally, and I think, I think she knew that she was that that Sinclair was up to no good. I just think that she didn't know how deep he was, or right. you know where his real uh, motivations were. Uh, his his loyalties were lying with the Nazis. So when she picked up that book, she's like, "Wow, 
<laughs> that changes everything. Yeah, I, th- I figured she just thought this guy's probably another Hollywood slime ball, you know, right. just trying to get Working as many girls into bed as possible. Yeah. But I, yeah, a, a Nazi spy. I don't think that was on her list uh, until then. So, <laughs> well, what did you guys think of the casting? I mean, uh, Billy Campbell, uh, we know him uh, from Star Trek. A lot of people know him from the next generation, Darren, you know, so getting a little, uh, you know, uh, Earl Grey love here. Uh, we, Alan Arkin, this is the first time that I ever saw Jennifer Connelly and I'm not going to lie, I've, I've been a huge fan ever since. She is... She really looks pretty much the same these days. Um, Timothy Dalton, uh, Bond is in this movie. Uh, You know, Terry O'Quinn, all I can think is Locke, even though he's not talking about a smoke monster. (laughs) And uh, for those Deep Space Nine fans, another Star Trek uh, person... Tiny Ron. Yeah. That's right. Who who was in Deep Space Nine is Mayhardu all of those years with the Nagus. So, I mean, w- this cast, wow. With the same makeup from the Rocketeer. Yeah. So, no, yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. No, this cast is great. I mean, it's. I did a little digging, and here are a couple names that may be of interest to our listeners who these actors were up for the role of the Rocketeer. Kevin Costner. Was considered for the role. Matthew Modine, who was an who would have been an interesting choice because I think he kind of shares the same quality that uh, that um, Billy Campbell had. Uh, let's see who else: Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell, Bill Paxton, Emilio Estevez. Johnny Depp was a front runner. I'm just trying to picture Emilio Estevez as the yeah, Rocketeer. That, that's, that's a bit. That's a bit much so of a short. stretch for me. Yeah, but. he'd be so short. So, uh, but I could see Johnny Depp doing it. Charlie Sheen yeah. probably could have been in that. But I really do like the fact that, at least with Billy Campbell and and Jennifer Connelly, uh, I loved that they went with newcomers. Yeah. Because when you do that, you allow yourself to invest in the character. And gosh, I mean, the word when when Jennifer Connelly came on the screen, I think the word is smitten because it's just she had that 1930s vibe. She the character was modeled after Betty Page. Um, and there's that look that she had. She just had that look in every single intent and purpose of that word. She has that quality. And she was gorgeous. She was voluptuous. She was smart. She was able. She was feisty. She was this really gorgeous version of Marion Ravenwood. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then you have the, the rounded out. I mean, I can't even say enough about how good Timothy Dalton was as Neville Sinclair. He was perfect. Yeah. He was absolutely perfect in every detail. Terry O'Quinn as Howard Hughes looked great. Played the part great. All the supporting cast, all the people at the Bulldog Cafe. Paul Sorvino as Eddie Valentine, as you know, he was my greatest American hero that I just talked about. They were all great. This, I don't think they missed a beat in casting here at all. You know, I, uh, the only people I was missing in the background of some of those, uh, you know, restaurant scenes was like Nikki the Nose, uh, because it definitely felt yeah. like yeah. it was out of a uh, uh, a Jean Luc Picard hollow novel. Um, uh, was it Dixon Hill? Yeah. So expect Dixon Hill to to try to crack this Nazi case wide open, you know, had a very similar feel. Well, and one of the things that I love about Billy Campbell is just his earnestness. You know, like he plays it like a guy who is a pilot who finds a jetpack, you know, like and everything that entails. There's there's nothing false about his performance. You know, he he's it's almost as if. And this is not 
um, something bad, I'm definitely complimenting him, but it's like he's not even acting. He's just, he's like that kid pretending to be the guy, except that this time he really gets to quote unquote fly, you know? And, and I, I just love that about his performance. You know, there's, there's nothing put on about it. He's just an everyday guy trying to make his way in the world. He just happens to find a jetpack and his life gets topsy turvy for, you know, three days. And yeah, it, it's a really well done um, job by him, especially when you pit that with Alan Arkin, the kind of, you know, he's he's been around the block, you know, he's trying to get this kid, you know, to, to kind of man up and and just do the right thing and and um, keep him grounded. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and, and uh, what, you know, he just plays that to perfection. You know, he's not that cynical Alan Arkin that we know later on from, like, say, uh, uh, Little Miss Sunshine or something like that. You know, he's he's much more um, just kind of he, he's like your grandpa, you know, or Rance um, Holloway from um, from uh, the adventures of Burt Wonderstone. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, another uh, Trek connection I didn't even realize, again, the great Eddie Valentine, the American-Americans, was also in Star Trek as Nikolai Rajenko, Worf's brother, Mm -hmm. you know, who, you know, uh, prime directive, who cares, but he's going to do what's right. You know, he just can't. But he was definitely, he, you know, he was in, uh, you know, danger kind of, of being almost typecast of that mob kind of feel because right around then he was in like every mob movie of the day you know he was in dick tracy goodfellas you know i mean well it's not quite mob but you know uh at least 30s mob but uh yeah but just the the supporting cast is so is so great i mean we talk about uh you know terry o'quinn and again this is you know the 90s so it's he hasn't been in as many things at that point uh but you know still always he always gives it at all. I mean, he really is is doing his his best Howard Hughes right there. He's channeling it as as best he can, and and it comes across really well. It's a fun little. Uh, I, I enjoy all the scenes that that he shows up in. Well, and if that's not enough Trek connections for you, <laughs> we've got Rom, who's uh, you know Max Gronig is in the film. Um, you've also got a Clint Howard, mm-hmm. so he's in the movie. I mean. They're all over the place. So Trek actors were really getting their due in this movie, which I love. And like you were saying, you know, you've got all these background actors and actresses that are just fantastic. Uh, Margot Martindale, who plays Millie, you know, she's so good in that type of role. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I really loved having her because it adds such weight to these smaller characters, people like that, that really can make the most of any scene that they're in. And so... This movie, I think, is 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 just it's really perfectly cast, and it goes to creating just a, a near perfect film. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact, as we've kind of mentioned a few times, the music. I mean, this is action adventure, James Horner. With a smidge of, you know, Star Trek II thrown in every mm-hmm. once in a while. It just is a fantastic soundtrack. And if you don't have it in your library, you need it, listeners, because it'll make you feel good any part of the day, no matter what's happening. I mean, I was, I was a huge James Horner fan all the way back when, when Krull came out. There was a certain sense of 
of his world building through his music. And then when Kroll, you know, was done, a lot of that technique was a little bit more refined and polished. And then we got Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which is one of my all-time favorite movies and soundtracks. And then later on, you get Aliens. and But I always felt that The Rocketeer was probably probably his most refined up until that point because everything was very similar in terms of signature style. There are still beats and notes and phrasing and stuff like that in, in the Rocketeer soundtrack that harkens back to his, his older styles, but I always felt that this is where he started making that break, a kind of like a turn as a composer. And then we all know him, obviously, most famously for Titanic, Braveheart, and some of, the, uh, and some of those films. But he really does, like the production team did, build a world through soundtrack. And that's no easy feat, but as soon as you hear this, the first couple of notes or some of the action sequences or some of the tender sequences, he builds the phrases that allow you to even know what part of the movie you're watching just by hearing the soundtrack alone. And that's a great skill that very few composers have the ability of doing. John Williams, obviously, Howard Shore, James Horner. These, in my opinion, are um, Basil Polidors are some of the greatest composers and soundtrack composers in the, in the history of film. No, yeah. I, one of my roommates when I was growing up in, in college was a soundtrack collector. I think he had 500 CDs of soundtracks, and he introduced me to many of the great composers, uh, James Horner being one. And, and, and yeah, I love how, you know, The Rocketeer is such a mix of some of his of his styles. You have, you know, the, the lighthearted, lighthearted fun of you know like a honey i shrunk the kids but then you also get the epicness of like an apollo 13 you know and he just he plays the balance so well and and like you said norm you know with the rocketeer it's it's so recognizable in a good way it's not like oh well that's you know james horner you know rocketeer it's like no it's like oh i and because it's so entrenched in that movie like a good score should be you know you i instantly get that smile on my face of like oh it's the right it's like oh i want to put that in again you know i want to watch that again because it's you know such a such a good score and uh yeah he's he's really you know that's he's really just starting to you know try new things and i i agree with that kind of turning a new chapter of his of his level uh with the rocketeer well, and one of the great things that uh, I think it does is the minute you start to hear this music, you're immediately placed in this movie. You know, even if you're just listening to it, you know, you can you can hear the music, but then you can see in your mind's eye exactly what's happening. And you know, and you you feel like you're there in the same way that you know. I, I think of um, even aside from like Star Wars or something. You know, I hear the opening beats of the Harry Potter music. And I'm immediately transported, you know, into his world. And so that's that's one of the things that I just love. And it's what makes music for film so special and how it binds the story and the picture and everything together in one. So you don't even have to be watching the movie if it's good enough. You know, you can just feel it and and listen to it and be there. And that's what's so great. And it's sometimes what I miss about... Um, these type of scores, specifically the James Horners or the John Williams, the way that they create themes 
so that, you know, characters have a theme, so that all of that, I think, I sometimes miss that with the kind of more atmospheric uh, soundtracks that we get these days. And I'm glad, and in some ways, I feel like those are popping up more often now. So, especially with, you know, something like Michael Giacchino doing soundtracks for a lot of films and stuff like that. So, yeah, music can't be undersold especially when i think of like the way the music was done in interstellar and how it just it created that that whole milieu that the film sat in it's it's just so special well the neat thing about soundtracks at that time at least for me is like you the 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 rise of home video was kind of like happening around you know the late 80s early 90s it wasn't really all that affordable so the only way you could really get back to being connected to the movie that you loved so much, I mean, aside from seeing it a couple times in the theater, was the soundtrack, because the soundtrack was released. It was pretty pretty much, aside from maybe a a magazine or maybe some Burger King toys or a couple of movie tie-ins, that was the really the only persistent and permanent collectible that you could get from a movie. So, like, when I was younger, I was telling a friend of mine at this at work, he's like... Where did you start off with the soundtrack? Because I was talking about how awesome the Rocketeer soundtrack is. And I said, when I was younger, I had two 8-track tapes because my 8-track player was expensive and the two 8-tracks that I had were expensive. And I had The Sound of Music and I had Star Wars. And I played those things until they basically busted because that was the only way I could get connected with the films again. And then the compact disc craze started going around in the the late 80s. You know, uh, tapes were kind of like declining a little bit so but you were getting a lot more soundtracks so you could really return and connect and fall in love again with all those movies that you haven't seen in a while and every single time I put in the Rocketeer soundtrack it makes me feel exactly the same way I felt when I saw the movie the first time you fall in love with the nostalgia not only for the movie but for all of what was going on in your life at that time it just brings you back to such a happier place because that movie is so uplifting. And when you walked out of that movie theater, you're like, that's what movies are supposed to do. You know, remember, Matthew, you and I talked about like the, the darkness and the grim reality that creeps into your movies. I don't want that to happen in a Rocketeer. I don't want ever to have that happen in a sequel if we ever get one because that's not what that is. You know, you want to be able to leave that movie like you left Captain America, the, uh, the first Avenger, and say like, wow. That felt good, and that's what that soundtrack does for me. Well, for you guys, as we've been talking through this, and and I think we all know the answer to this, but I thought it was a great question when we talked with John Champion about Indiana Jones and whether or not the film still holds up for audiences today. And do you guys feel that, you know, you you could pop the Rocketeer in for, you know, a, a kid of today who's, you know, 9, 10, 11 um, or, you know, maybe somebody who's just never seen it. They didn't grow up with it. And what do you guys think? Does this movie still hold up for audiences? Yeah, I definitely would feel it would hold up. Uh, you know, it, I think I wish they'd kind of re-release it for like an anniversary or something just to get it out there again and, and put it on, you know, give it the Blu-ray treatment or or give it a special, you know, edition. Uh, you know, it's Disney, so you have to hope that they have, you know, some sort of extra behind the scenes whatevers or even if you you know interviewed a lot of the actors who are still alive you could definitely you know have a great you know bit of extra content but yeah i'd say 
you know, it, it does have like a, a Jurassic Park like quality of, of holding up. And like we've said, the story is still a really good story. Uh, that's uh, a good, you know, it's a good light story. You know, it, it I think it would skew a little more towards uh, kids being able to adapt it a little more than, you know, Indiana Jones or things like that, you know, which are a little more adult uh, just by maybe one or two notches. But yeah, I would definitely uh, always recommend this to to people because it's just it's so much fun. And once you watch it, I mean, I don't I don't know anyone who doesn't like the Rocketeer or I mean, I mean, it may not be your favorite, but I, I don't know anyone who dislikes it, at least to that degree. I think the one thing that that I'm going to borrow from what I said about Raiders in the previous podcast when we did Raiders of the Lost Ark that I can apply here to the Rocketeer is this is it's a timeless story because it was done so well in period. And when you do something like that, when you can sell the fact that this was going on in that time period and they do it so well with the the just the great iconic flavors of the 1930s with the sets and the costumes and the set decoration and the costume design, it just allows that to stand alone because it has nothing to do with today or modern times or current events or politics. This was basically just a good old-fashioned good versus bad or good versus evil story. And much like, again, I, I always bring up The Last Starfighter, you have a hero who didn't want to be a hero, but this great responsibility was thrust on him, and it allows you to kind of step into his shoes and go through this journey and see, like, yeah, this is. I think I would have done that too. You know, given the opportunity, I would have done the right thing. But yeah, I think I probably would have bumbled along the way just because, you know, I'm not the perfect hero. It just told a great story. It told it in a timeless way. It told it in a period that obviously was probably, you know, it, it forged the greatest generation and it it fought the greatest evil of their time, still certainly of history. And it just did it so well. And I, I always give the Rocketeer like my highest recommendation because you're right, Darren. It, there's I don't think I've met a person that said, wow, that movie's terrible or I would never watch that again or it was offensive. Actually, I think one of the greater compliments I've heard of that movie is like, well, it just it was it was kind of vanilla. But that's not a bad criticism about it because it wasn't it it wasn't an extreme movie. It didn't go to any extremes. It told a really good, very tight, economical nostalgic period piece story and I think that's great I think that will always hold up because the quality is there just like Raiders yeah I'm with you guys I I, there is nothing about this movie that I don't think holds up even the effects which we talked about and they're so well done that uh, I don't I don't really see the the problems with them you know I I know that those mat lines are there but it doesn't pull me out of the story you know because it's just so much part of the action and it's so well executed even then that I'm, I'm I'm not even paying attention to that I'm just pulled along with the rest of the story um and I think that just speaks for some fantastic work being done here with the effects and and um, then there's the storyline, I think, as well. It, it it pops, it flows, it, it goes from zero to 60 and it never stops. Um, 
even in the slower moment beats you know it there's nothing about it that's dragging ever the the casting as we talked about is just nigh perfect so there's there's nothing to complain about in this film and and like you norm this is a movie if you haven't seen her you just haven't seen in a while man go watch it because it, you're going to be doing yourself a favor it because it's always a good time and you know like we talked about um I have no problems with serious movies or serious movies even happening in a uh, a comic book form or anything like that. That that's not the issue. I just wish sometimes we got more movies like this that had the heart and the soul of a rocketeer, you know, and um, I miss that. And, And hopefully somebody out there, maybe even Joe Johnson will pull out something and, and maybe they'll, um, you know, maybe they'll do the Rocketeer, you know, 20-some-odd years later. Um, you know, he has to come out of retirement. Uh, I don't know. It just would be great. So, I yeah, I love this film, and I, I think that uh, it is for anyone and everyone. It's just that good. Well, guys, um, I'm so excited that we got to, s- to sit around and just talk about the Rocketeer. It's so much fun. But, of course, it is not the only thing that we have been talking about here on Trek FM the past week. So here is a quick look of some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. This episode isn't very good. But <laughs> are we just going to pin all of our <laughs> choices? You pretty much have to. But the thing about this episode, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, I think, is it's a crazy idea. Earl Grey. Picard, can you construct a, a rudimentary lathe? Go for its weeks. <laughs> it's an energy being. It doesn't have a vulnerable spot. <laughs> Get off the line, the forge. The orb. Or we could just blame it on Janeway somehow, you know, that she it's scared fault, the yeah. Borg into the Gamma Quadrant because they were tired of dealing with her in the Delta Quadrant. I don't know. To the journey! Because this is the dangers, by the way, kids, of having uh, babies in the 24th century. Because if Kathy's first word was coffee and she was standing next to the replicator, the next thing you know, you have a hyped up two-year-old. The ready room. Well, it's kind of like, you know, you've got your lucky shirt when you're watching a football game, and your team won when you were wearing it, so now you have to wear it every time. That's also the Enterprise insignia. That's the insignia of the only ship whose crew didn't die. Yeah. So Just wear course, it on the right color shirt, that's all. That's right. Commentary, Trek stars. And then he turns to her and he says, who, who is that man that I was just hugging? And she says, that was William Shatner. And he's like, who? Literary Treks. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really a, a fan of a lot of, you know, different kinds of you know, naval fiction. Uh, you know, I, I, C.S. Forrester, Horatio Hornblower, those novels. So uh, good. Yeah, Patrick O'Brien, uh, you know, the, the Master and Commander books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are all things which sort of put me into the right mindset. The 602 Club. So when we come kind of to the story here, and especially off of doing literary treks where we talk about Michael Pillar's book, Fade In kind of got behind the scenes of, of insurrection and really seeing how the that story changed to me it really just exemplified the importance of story in a movie and that's what else is happening on trek.fm
check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us, of course, wherever you get your podcast. If you are an Apple user, hit that subscribe button. It helps us out greatly, and it's easier for the other listeners to, to find the show when they search in iTunes. And then, of course, right now, specifically for the 602 Club, if you go to iTunes and write a review and give us a star rating, you're going to be entered to win a $15 gift card. It's running through March 6th, so any review is eligible, even those who have already given us a review, which we thank you so much for that. And uh, on March 6th, my associate producer, Norman Lau, is going to be picking the winner from our iTunes reviews. So I'm keeping track, too, of people that have told me they've given us a review in, in our um, other stores around the world. So even if that's happened, I'm still keeping track of you. Just make sure you let me know on the Babel Conference or... Send me a tweet or something that you've given us a review because you'll be eligible as well. Just want to say thank you um, and help get the word about about the show. So that's another way. Then, of course, you know what, though? If you're not an Apple user, guys, we've got you covered as well because we are everywhere. We're like Jeffrey Combs, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and, of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Darren. Where can everybody find you online as well as on the network? Because, yeah, I love having you on the show. And, of course, you're welcome back anytime. So thanks for being here to talk The Rocketeer. Well, online they can find me primarily on Twitter. Uh, Username is Dr. Sci-Fi. That's D-R-S-C-I-F-I. I I love talking about uh, great musical scores, Power Rangers, pretty much everything. And you can find me on the network under our show Earl Grey, which I co-host with Daniel Prue and Philip Gilfus every week as we talk about Star Trek The Next Generation. And Norm, great to have you back. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you on, on Twitter and, and, of course, on the network as well. Well, you can always find me here on the network as the host for Warp 5, our dedicated enterprise show. You can also find me on the Babel Conference, our Facebook listeners page. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm also a proud supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar Project. And you can find me on the Axonar fan group page on Facebook. And lastly, I'm a proud supporter of Trek FM through Patreon. And I'm an associate producer of four shows on the network. On the network Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axonar, the official Axonar podcast. Now, Ruby's a little mad at me because I've been ignoring her for a long time. So I'm going to see if Ruby is going to come with me to the next Neville Sinclair movie because I heard she's a huge James Bond fan. Well, I mean, I don't know how you can go wrong there. So best of luck, Norm. Another way you can help keep all of our shows coming to each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. In fact, right now, if you are a patron, you can get the orb early which is fantastic so those are just some of the perks that we have for you you just go to patreon.com slash trek fm and you'll find all those current goals and milestone contribution levels and then it'll tell you where those great perks come from early access to content like the orb exclusive content producer credit seats on the content development team and more we really appreciate all the support you can give us and we hope that you'll join the team again you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek fm I just wanted to give a quick shout out to a couple of iTunes reviews that we have gotten. One in the Canadian store from Nico453, five stars. Thank you so much. And also Rachel from STL in the U.S. store, five stars. Guys, really appreciate all that time that you give us there. Want to say a special thank you to Norman Lau, 
associate producer, thanks so much for being here. And of course, Kenneth Tripp, who's also our associate producer. We really appreciate all the support, you guys. Uh, it means so much to us and to me personally that you guys are supporting the 602 Club. If you want to contact us, do that at trek.fm slash contact. Voicemail, look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com. Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And of course, we've got the listeners only discussion group, the best place to talk Trek and everything else at the Babel Conference. That's B A B E L. Just type that in the search field on Facebook or go to the website at TrekFM and click discussion on the menu bar. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps bring the 602 Club to you each week as well as all of our shows and that sponsor is audible.com the best way to read all those books you just don't have time for anymore so whether you're running working out in any capacity just sitting on the couch going to work any of those times a great time to listen to a book and as a trek and villain listener you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great audible is go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm And we thank Audible for supporting the 602 Club and the network. Guys, you know where you can find me. I'm on Twitter, at MattRushing02. I'm also on The Orb with Christopher Jones talking about Deep Space Nine exclusively. And then, of course, doing Literary Treks with Dan where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Guys, it has been awesome there. We've had three interviews in a row with authors. It's awesome. So if you're not into the Star Trek books or comics, you need to be checking out the show because before you know it, you are going to have a library full of them. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Listeners, thank you so much for being here with us. And y'all come back now, you hear? here.